Today, we're remembering a great polar adventure that was a colossal failure. Its participants endured inhuman conditions, frostbite, and near starvation. Yet they, and especially the explorer who led them, were hailed as heroes, and they still are today. The adventurer was Sir Ernest Shackleton. On December 5, 1914, 100 years ago, he and his men boarded the aptly named ship, the Endurance. They set out to do what no one had done before, to traverse the entire continent of Antarctica. What happened over the next 635 days was an epic struggle for survival. It's become the focus of films and books and a singularly spectacular example of leadership. Ernest Shackleton saw his men through months of privation and desperation and brought each of them back home alive. How he showed his leadership, even amid his flaws, has captivated Harvard Business School professor and historian Nancy Kane. She has taught and lectured around the world about Shackleton's leadership, and she's written a case study about it, which was recently updated in the form of a Kindle book called Ernest Shackleton, Exploring Leadership. We're happy she came to our studios to talk with us about this breathtaking story. The last port of call, last connection to civilization for the expedition, was South Georgia Island, uh, a small island many hundreds of miles to the southeast of the tip of South America, where there was a whaling station. Um, and sh when Shackleton and his men arrived there, and the whalers told them that pack ice, floating ice, icebergs, big mm big, big, huge chunks of ice had come very far north and that the best advice they could give the captain of the Endurance Expedition was to hole up and wait through the season for the ice to disperse so they could sail safely, smoothly, now southwest mm -hmm. to the coast of Antarctica. And Shackleton waits for a couple of weeks and, and then decides, I'm heading south. And so he and his men begin... Really, it was like a jigsaw puzzle um, in terms of navigating through the cracks and crevices of open water through all these bergs. There are amazing photographs taken by Frank Hurley, the expedition photographer, from the mast of the Endurance of what it looked like to snake through this puzzle. Um, and then in January, the ship finds itself, Shackleton and his men find themselves about 80 miles off the coast of Antarctica, mm -hmm. land in sight. And Shackleton makes a very important although he couldn't have known it at the time, decision to sail further east along the coast in the hopes of getting closer to what he thought would be an ideal place to make base camp. Mm -hmm. And in that decision lies the fate of the expedition because overnight, before they get to land, ice, ice pack ice, bergs surrounding the ship, grab it in a vise and lock it in place. And so Shackleton, in a sense finds himself, the men in Shackleton find themselves in an entirely new game. They can't push themselves out with, you know, fuel power, with, with, with the power of the ship. They can't hack their way through the ice into open water. They are locked in place by these, you know, multi-ton blocks of ice. And suddenly, the whole game has changed. So this is when things start to go really south. But before we do that, let's talk about Shackleton the man clearly an entrepreneur, living in an entrepreneurial time. What, what makes him tick? You know, I think he, like other explorers, once the pole had been discovered, he had been twice before to the Antarctic, before the pole was discovered, so twice he had tried, mm -hmm. put his life on the line to be the first to that compelling, seductive place, and failed. Mm -hmm. And so I think 
the drive to be the first at something that would claim the recognition of his fellow men. He was Irish-born from a middling class family of his of elites that sat above him on the social hierarchy. We can't underestimate the power of that yearning. And so, you know, I think this is a man of, of, of many, many talents, but of a kind of driving, pulsating ambition that made him go south, even when there were lots of reasons to hole up. But at some point, he goes from being blindly ambitious to being the inspirational leader, and that's sort of the core of the case. Take us back to the endurance and tell us what happened. So there are a couple of really important inflection points, right, in this journey. This is one of two of the most important, right? The, the ship holds the ice. The game has changed. It's not clear how they'll get free. It's not clear if they'll get free. So one very, very important aspect of this story is how Shackleton, how he makes this transition from I will get south, I will be the first to cross the continent in, in spite of all obstacles to I will take responsibility for my men and come what may, I will bring them home alive. So one really important lesson that comes out of this story so clearly, I mean the wonderful thing about this story is there's not a lot going on, mm. right? They're in terribly cold temperatures and there are no landmarks. It's mm -hmm. just there's no line on the horizon. So one thing that we learn very clearly in this case is that when leaders find their, their backs and their mission up against the wall, they first have to turn inside and figure out how to manage and lead from their own stronger self, you know, from their own core strength in order to, right, pull themselves and their mission out from beneath or, or, or in front of the obstacle and move on. Mm -hmm. And so Shackleton clearly does that, and he figures out how to start creating schedules for the men on the ice-locked ship. He figures out how to, you know, give them things to do, how to manage their time, including things like he requires all the men, as soon as the ice locks the ship, to start spending an hour after supper in the evening in the stateroom socializing. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't want the men separating and, and giving way to disillusionment that might turn to stronger doubt and then despair. Mm -hmm. Managing his own energy and then managing the energy of his team becomes of paramount importance to him suddenly, now that everything has you know changed, right? Yeah, and the game right. is you know a new one. Because from this moment, he understands very, very clearly, if you're going to manage your own energy and then the energy of your men or your team in unexpected or turbulent circumstances, again, a lesson for our own turbulent time, you're going to have to learn to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So he's very good at figuring out who are the doubting Thomases mm -hmm. and keeping those men very close to him. Later on, in, in, in the last phase of the expedition, once the ship goes down a second important turning point, um, and the men are living in tents on the ice, he'll keep the Doubting Thomases in his tent because mm. he doesn't want them sowing, again, their doubt and their disillusionment among the others. So a second very important lesson is about how you organize your team in which ensembles and what you do with the people that are prone to default into a negative stance. This phase of the expedition, from the time the, the, the ice locks the ship until our late summer in the northern hemisphere, the, the, the early part of winter mm -hmm. uh, in the southern hemisphere, is characterized by still Shackleton hoping that they'll be able to find a way to open water. The ice will crack. The ice will melt. They'll figure out a way to power themselves back in to open waters and get to Antarctica. And then, beginning about August, that prospect becomes increasingly unlikely because what happens is that the 
the vice-like nature of these ice blocks starts cracking the foundations of the ship. And so by September, the ship is actually being crushed, Mm -hmm. slowly crushed, and it's leaning at at, at an increasingly sharp angle. Out of the water. Out of the water. Out of the water. And and he knows by by the early September, as he says to his first mate, the person he confides in, Frank Wilde, what the ice gets, the ice keeps. He knows they won't. They won't be able to keep the ship. Mm-hmm. And so the next couple of months, when they finally abandon ship as the, as the timbers crack and water starts to seep in, they abandon ship and start making camp on the ice with tents and stores, retrieving supplies from the ship, yeah. including a bunch of negatives that the photographer Frank Hurley had taken. So we have incredible pictures that were saved, negatives that were saved from the expedition, which is fantastic. And we can link to some of those on the podcast And, and we site can link too. to yeah. some of those, which are fantastic. So to just cut to the next inflection point, in, in very early November, the men are on the ice. They're living in tents. They've saved the three lifeboats that went on the endurance. And one day, Shackleton sees that the ship is starting to sink through the ice. And he says, boys, she's going down. And in the the, the course of about 12 hours, the ship slips through the ice. You know, the mast is the last thing to go, and Mm -hmm. then the ice closes completely over. And so then, second inflection point, there's nothing but their tents and the lifeboats, empty lifeboats, and their supplies and their dogs. And he has got to get them home safely. And he, that night, he paces the ice, unbeknownst to the men, and talks to himself. And he writes about this in his journal. A man must shape himself to a new mark once the old one goes aground. Mm -hmm. And that is Shackleton, lesson number three, trying to get access to his own courage muscles and thinking very strategically about how he must show up to his men in order to elicit their support and trust. The next morning, he and Hurley go round the tents with hot milk and wake the men up. He calls a meeting. And he says, well, lads, shipping stores gone. We'll go home now. Mm. Amazing. So amazing kind of, again, inflection point. Yeah. We'll go home now. So he's the eternal optimist in the face of complete devastation. Why don't the crew think that he's just crazy at this point? I mean, why do they continue to believe in his optimism? First, the way he shows up every single day. So, you know, a really important lesson that I talk to leaders about is what do you look like as you walk in the office each day, right? Well, who do you make eye contact with? What's your presence like? What's your posture like? What kind of energy are you summoning up? So I think that Shackleton was not always optimistic, but he always appeared very certain to his men that he would deliver on their mission. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he'd walked out of his tent one day and said, hey, guys, I had, couldn't sleep. I'm so worried about what's <laughs> going to happen. Can you help me get right with this anxiety? The whole, the whole game would have been up. Right. So he had this incredible ability to manage his emotions in front of his men toward in service to his mission. So I think that that was incredibly important. A second thing was that Shackleton was always improvising. So he always had a plan. So as soon as the ship goes down, you know, only a few days pass before he gets this idea that we'll walk across the ice flows and try and get to, you know, dry land. And then we'll get the lifeboats in the water and we'll sail and see if we can make contact with a trading ship. Mm -hmm. So he's always got a plan. So it's not like Shackleton allows tons and tons of time or energy to dissipate because he's not focused on what we're going to do next. So he always has the next move, and he's laying it out to his men. Mm -hmm. And I think a very important part of them believing in him 
was that ability to always have the next move ready, even like Lincoln during the Civil War, when he didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. Right. So this ability to kind of navigate point to point is incredibly important. And I think there's a, a, a if you will, a fourth reason that the men believe so strongly in him. And that is that he spent time among them on a regular basis and they had a sense of who he was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if blind or at times reckless ambition powered a lot of his early moves in this expedition, by the time they're stranded on the ice, this is someone who is dealing one-on-one with them, listening well, understands how to connect in a very, very real way with his men. And so they had a sense of who he was as a human being. And that connection was also very important to keeping their trust, even in the face of doubting Thomases, that at times threatened to sabotage that energy and turn the tide of his men against him. Mm-hmm. And, and so Shackle was able to mitigate that and in some cases just dial it way down in the moment. But I think this sense of this is a guy who, who really believes in, in us and who is responsible for us was enormously important. Let's go back also to some early decisions he made. He was pretty careful about who he selected to go on this, and he somehow managed to avoid the culture clash of scientists and sailors and enlisted men privileged and class and enlisted yeah. men. And that was enormously important. And every time I teach this, particularly to executives, they point to that, that he assembled his team, not as a group of, you know, well, I need an engineer and I need a scientist and I need this many officers. He assembled it as much by what he thought made his men tick as he did by their resumes. So he starts off, he did not know at the time he, how much he would need, right, the, the, the ad, attitudinal attributes that he had hired for. But he starts off with a group of men that were, you know, that were answering that ad or something like that ad. You know, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be tough. We're ready for it. And that was enormously important, right? So he had the sourdough starter, if you will, of the expedition is the men's temperaments. And, and P.S., he doesn't just hire them for, an, for a group of temperaments. He hires them as an ensemble. And us, he assembles an ensemble, right, of men that he thinks will work together well, mm-hmm. not unlike a theater troupe. And so he has that going for him as well. Nonetheless, I mean, we're still talking about odds that are enormously high and stacked against him yeah. once that ship goes down. So they're stuck on the ice. What happens? They're, they're, they're on the ice flows for almost another six months before the ice starts to break up. And they are living on a combination of stores from the endurance that's canned. It's canned meat. It's canned milk and killed fresh seal and penguin meat, which Shackleton was adamant that the men must eat. This is early, early years of nutrition. We don't know what we know, anything like what we know about nutrition then. Um, But Shackleton knows from his previous expeditions on the ice that fresh meat is a prophylactic against scurvy. Mm. So he's insistent the men will eat lots of fresh meat. Eventually, they will have to kill their dogs because they're running out of of food for the dogs. And they kill them and they eat the dogs as well. And that's very, very hard for the men because the dogs were their companions. Um, but, and but, they have some power bars. Right? And they They've have got... these, um, <laughs> these power bars, these nutritional bars that Shackleton, again, based on his experience in two previous expeditions, had had made before they went south that are these very densely packed, protein-rich and carbohydrate-rich bars that really resemble energy bars of our time and that he had, in a sense, you know, engineered himself and had made, and, and they're eating those. Mm-hmm. And so, amazingly, 
it's not till the very, very tail end of this uh, complicated, very, very difficult tale that there's any danger that the men are, are, are going to starve, although they don't know that at the time. But they're on the icebergs, on living on tents, on the pack ice, until uh, March of 1916. But Shackleton, nonetheless, keeps his men, you they're know. They're still going. They're still going. They're still getting up and going through a daily duty roster. The tents are clean. <laughs> the camp is neat. The men eat. The men socialize. Temperatures are 20 below at night. At, uh, temperatures average about 20 below Fahrenheit during their winter months, uh, a little bit warmer during their summer months. So it, we're not talking about a long vacation. It's very, very difficult. When the ice starts to break up in March of, of 1916, the men take their lifeboats. Shackleton, they have now drifted way west. Shackleton hopes that by taking to the lifeboats and literally rowing their way up the west coast of Antarctica and then up the archipelago of islands, he will get far enough north to find a trading ship so they can be rescued. He knows there are supplies cached way, way up northwest of the continent from other expeditions. Mm -hmm. And they take to the boats, three boats, 28 men, and it's a grueling, gruesome journey. the, the barrels of fresh water that they've made by melting ice um, over small stoves start to leak so the men don't have fresh water to drink. Many of them contract dysentery, so they are terribly, terribly ill. The sea is very rough. One of the sailors, um, his hands freeze to the oars and his hands have to be you know chipped off the oars. I mean, every which way you look, it is a desperate journey. And after almost a week of this, Shackleton realizes he can't keep the men going. He has to pull in to land, to one of these islands, so he can't get as far north as he wants because his men are going to die in the boats. Mm. And so they, with great difficulty against high winds and great waves, they tuck in at a big rock called Elephant Island, not nearly as far north as Shackleton wants. There's nothing there. There are barnacles, right? There's a very, very small rocky beach. There are penguins and, and a few seals, but he has to stop. And the men stagger out of the boats. They stagger. It's the first time they've been on dry land, again, for 15 months. Mm. There's fresh water so they can drink. And even before they make camp and they start to turn the lifeboats over to create shelter and, and you know heat up milk, um, even before they do that, Shackleton's plotting his next move. Of course. And so the story takes another turn now because Shackleton's sure they won't be found there. They're too far south. There's no trading. There's no ships that will find them. They can't, you know, hope for an outside source of salvation. And he's he's decided that he and five other men will sail for South Georgia, the whaling station, Back which was their last port of call. And, and, and it's about, he knows it's about 800 miles as the crow flies. I've taught this case to sailors. I've taught this case to executives and MBAs that have been on the sea. They will all to a one tell you this is some of the mo- these are some of the most difficult sea waters, ocean waters to navigate in the world. Mm. And he's proposing to take a 26-foot long lifeboat, rig it up with a mast, and head northeast 800 miles through these seas with nothing more than basically like a chronometer, a very, very primitive navigation instrument that requires readings from the sun and some kind of steady state position to yeah. get those readings. So this is a desperation play. This it, is it, this it, is the last ditch. It is it is a last card to play. 
And Shackleton never displays anything like any knowledge of such difficulties. He's like, well, we'll go. We'll get our carpenter to put some rocks in the bottom of the boat and build sides on the boat. We'll put a mast on it. We'll put some tarp across it. We'll put our sleeping bags in and some barrels of fresh water and food, and off we go. You know, not a whit of doubt, not the whisper of doubt observable in anything that he does for the next week while they prepare to do this. Interestingly, he takes three of his doubting Thomases. With him. With him, because he doesn't want them left on that island, because he's basically saying, we'll come back and get you guys, sowing doubt and despair. So he takes three, and then he takes Thomas Crean, who'd been on other expeditions that was strong as an ox, and he takes, he takes Frank Worsley, the navigator, mm-hmm. and off they go. They leave, um, I believe, on April 20th, 1916. Imagine you're waving them off and you're on Elephant Island. You have no idea if they're coming back. And they sail, and they set sail. And about 20 20 days later, May 10th, they actually get to South Georgia Island. Um, It's a long, complicated story. It's a tremendous act of navigational skill. It's a tremendous act of courage on the part of of Ernest Shackleton because the ship is almost overwhelmed by huge waves. Men start to flag. Shackleton, every time a man flags, Shackleton makes hot milk for everyone because he Flag, doesn't— Flags meaning— Meaning his energy goes <clears throat> looks low uh-huh. or he seems to be physically ailing. Shackleton makes hot milk or tea for everyone because he doesn't want to s- signal or point out who's suffering. He doesn't want to embarrass the men, and he wants to keep the energy levels high. He was always— this is another lesson that I stress to the male executives and male students I have. He, just like every woman, uses food as a leadership tool. So clearly when the chips were down, Shackleton you know, had a way of, of figuring out what the right thing to do, adjusting in the moment. But you know, the chips wouldn't have been down yeah. if he had listened to the advice that he was given at many points along the way. And he made some, some pretty bad decisions that got them in that place in the first place. He sure did. One of the interesting things is, He made all these decisions. A bunch of them were short-sighted. Some of them I think we could even call reckless or speedy or not very well thought out. Mm -hmm. My own read of this is that he knew he was responsible in some Mm -hmm. real measure for this. And one of the interesting things that I think we, we forget as we are drawn to this story is that we're living in an age when a lot of very public figures do not say, as Harry Truman would say, the buck stops here, I own it, I'm responsible. So... Shackleton never said to his men, I got you in this mess, I will get you out. He never said that. But I think every single day he said that to himself. (laughs) I own this, and I'm going to clean it up. It it doesn't exonerate Shackleton in any way, shape, or form. It does say, I did something wrong, and I'll make make it right. Anyway, they get to South Georgia on May 10th after a 20-day astounding journey against all odds. Because the ship is damaged, they have to sail into the island on the wrong side of it. It's completely unchartered. There are no maps. And then begins an astounding several-day journey on foot, and they, they march across the island, up and down, round and round, you know, trying to get across the mountain range that and is... Ironically, this becomes the first new land that he will chart in this expedition. Absolutely. This is the first new land, right? He is the first to cross... South Georgia Island, there are amazing moments of improvisation. I'll give you two here. One is they get very, very high and night falls, and he realizes that they're so high, they'll freeze to death. They don't have a tent. They have nails from the lifeboat that they've made into crampons on the bottom of their boots. They have a coil of rope. They have a small Prima stove to heat up 
milk, um, an axis. And he realizes we're so high we're going to freeze to death. And he says, men, let's coil up the rope and sledge down. And they just sail into the darkness, down from this plateau they've reached. And, and then the second astounding moment of improvisation is the next day, Crean and Worsley are ready to give up the ghosts. They're so tired. They keep doing all these switchbacks because they can't seem to, to, to find a way across the mountains. And they're ready to just drop. And he says, let's take a nap. We're tired. And he says, like, brief kip, boys. And they start to fall asleep. And Shackleton realizes that if he falls asleep, they'll freeze to death. No one will wake up. They're exhausted. And so he wakes them up in five minutes and says, well, we've had a good 30-minute nap, haven't we, lads? Let's keep going. And they do. And they get, they get to the whaling station. You know, they haven't shaved or bathed in, in months. They're unrecognizable when, in their tattered clothes when they knock on the captain of the whaling station's door. And Shackleton says it's, it's Captain Ernest Shackleton. No one you know, had heard from him, right, in you know, well, 16 months. Dead, they presume right? he's dead. Yeah. And he said, when did the war end? And the captain says, it hasn't. The world's gone mad. And that marks um, the beginning of the final phase of the expedition, which is how does Shackleton now get to Elephant Island and get his remaining 22 men home to London? It takes him four attempts to get a ship that can get back to Elephant Island and rescue his men. It takes him months. So he, you know, he arrives at the whaling station in May of 1916. It's not till mid-August of 1916 that he actually gets a ship that can get through, guess what, more pack ice and, and, and rescue his men. And there's this wonderful scene that Worsley, who stays with him throughout this time, um, reconstructs. He's standing on the deck counting the men on the island because they're all waving because they see a ship. They don't know initially it's the boss. It's mm-hmm. Shack- That's what they called him, the boss. And he counts the men and he says, there's 22. My God, they're all alive. Wow. And this enormous sense of satisfaction and gratification that his mission was about to be completed successfully. And then, he, and then he gets back to London. And amazingly, just to add a, an astounding postscript, or two astounding postscripts, the first one is that most of the men enlist because the war is still going on. And tragically, two of them are killed very quickly on the battlefield. So to have endured all that and then to die in machine gun fire seems, again, just a tragic postscript. And then the second astounding postscript is that in the early 1920s, Shackleton gets the idea that he'll go south again. I mean, I guess it was so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> and the endurance, we'd all, we'd all go back. And amazingly, a large number of his crew sign up to go again with the boss. So this ill-fated trip that history could have written off as an abysmal failure right. turns out not to be that just by the sheer force of this person's leadership. By the force of his leadership, you know, and its ingredients, right, his commitment, his persistence or endurance— his access to his own, you know, muscles of moral courage, the way he showed up every single day in front of them, no matter what he was thinking or feeling inside, no matter his doubts, his ability to improvise, his ability to keep his focus on the future. So all the things that didn't work, he didn't get trapped in blaming himself or his men for what didn't work. He kept moving forward. Um, And I think finally, you know, he had a great reservoir of humanity and of humor that were incredibly important. They were the seasoning in this recipe. And they kept him and his men going through, again, astounding odds. 
Lots of lessons, still highly relevant. Nancy Kane, thank you so much for joining us. Great privilege. Historian Nancy Kane of Harvard Business School. We've got some great photos from the Shackleton Adventure on our website. Take a look. We're already lining up guests for the business podcast for 2015, and we'd like to know who you want to hear from. Post your thoughts at hashtag HBS. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the business on iTunes U or follow us on Harvard SoundCloud. Another edition of the business comes your way in two weeks with some special gift-giving suggestions. In fact, if you have a favorite book about business that you think our listeners should know about, tell us about it.